Today, I want to really get down to the back to the basics of intermittent fasting. And I want you to debunk five of the most common intermittent fasting myths that we hear all the time. Welcome to Waste Away, the intermittent fasting podcast. If you want to learn how to lose weight for life through intermittent fasting, burn fat, heal your thyroid and autoimmune issues, and break the bondage of food, then this podcast is for you. I'm Chantel Ray, author of Waste Away, the Chantel Ray Way, and each week I have different guests answering your questions. If you haven't had a chance to pick up your copy of Waste Away, visit ChantelRayWay.com slash podcast and you'll automatically get 20% off the book, audiobook, recipe book, coaching, and Inner Circle Facebook group. Remember, the thoughts and opinions in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Hey guys, Aaron here. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that you can find our full podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Not only do you get to see Chantel and our guests, but you also get to see any charts, graphs, or pictures that we may mention. Search Chantel Ray Way on YouTube or click the link in the show notes. And if you would like daily accountability as well as a resource with lots of helpful tips about Chantel's intermittent fasting lifestyle, head on over to ChantelRayWay.com slash coaching. As always, enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode, and today's guest is the president of the Intensive Dietary Management Program, which she founded with her partner, Dr. Jason Fung, who I'm sure that you're all familiar with, and she coaches clients all over the world, teaching them principles that allowed her herself to lose 60 pounds and to maintain a healthy lifestyle. It's such an honor to have her on the show. Please welcome Megan Ramos. Oh, I'm sorry, Megan Ramos. Is that right? <laughs> Thanks, Chantel. <laughs> that's correct. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. Um, so that's that's true. I, I did lose sixty pounds, but then I lost another twenty six. Oh um, wow! So my initial my initial weight loss goal was sixty, uh, so I was super pumped about that. Um, but then just. I keep continuing to adopt this into a healthy lifestyle. Uh, I lost another 26 pounds sort of beyond my goal. Um, I realized, I didn't realize I had such a poor body composition. And even after losing 60 pounds and hitting 120 pounds on the scale, I was like, oh, you know, like I, I should be feeling great. And I didn't. Um, but continuing with this lifestyle, I lost another 26 pounds of body fat, but I have put on muscle mass. So I don't weigh like 80 pounds. I, um, I have, how much do you weigh? How much do you weigh now? Currently 112 pounds. 112. So yeah, yeah. You so look very thin. Yeah. I, I actually got below a hundred as I was losing body fat and I'm like, okay, I've got to take my scrawny butt to the gym, uh, and start doing some weight training and incorporate more good fats into my diet. So I was, I actually have a better body composition and less body fat at 112 pounds than I did at 97 pounds. Wow. And how tall, how tall are you, Megan? I'm, I'm, five, I'm five feet tall. Five foot and, and one inch uh, is what I tell people. <laughs> but you're probably really only five foot, right? <laughs> you're like five foot and a half. I know that's what they say. I, I tell people I'm five, five, four and a half but I'm probably more like five, four and a quarter, you know, and barely like, and then I'll puff my hair up a little bit to make it a little bit taller, right? Um, I've done that. Well, 
tell us a little bit more about your personal health journey and you know what's your what's your why for for why you do what you do yeah absolutely so um looking looking back in my health i was always obnoxiously skinny until i was about 25. um but i wasn't healthy i going back to the importance of body composition i was very fat um on the inside so i i looked like a twig but my organs were full of fat and i was diagnosed with fatty liver disease when i was 12 and polycystic ovarian syndrome when i was 14. Um, so talk about that talk about that fatty liver because what are some of the causes? Oh, I know. I wanted to ask you before we get in. So how did you and Dr. Jason Fung meet? Oh, yeah. When I was 14 years old, I was interested in doing medical research. And one of my dad's good friends uh, was the director of the largest uh, kidney clinic in the in North America. Um, so kidney clinic, so a nephrology clinic. So nephrology is a study of kidney disease. So in his clinic, he saw people with early kidney disease, more severe kidney disease, and even to the point where they've had transplants or they're getting ready for a transplant or they're on dialysis. So when someone's kidneys fail, they have to get connected to a machine about three or four times a week for four to six hours at a time to filter their blood because kidneys' main job is to sort of filter the blood and keep the good stuff in and let the bad stuff go out. Uh, so a machine would do that. So he had this really big clinic, and I was interested in studying kidney disease because I had a family history of it. And uh, this doctor, uh, his kids were interested in studying law, so for the summer, our parents switched. His kids went to my dad's law practice and I went to his medical practice and I got assigned to a bunch of research projects that summer. And one of the nephrologists, so one of the kidney doctors that I was working with was Dr. Fung. Uh, so Jason was a brand new nephrologist, just uh, fresh out of his nephrology fellowship. He had just joined the group and how to complete some research projects. So we met uh, when I <laughs> felt like I was going back, like I was a toddler back then. So we met when I was 14, I'm 34, I'm gonna be 35 this year. <laughs> so we've been working together for just over 20 years now. That is awesome, that is so awesome. Um, so just so you know a little bit of background, um, when I first found out about intermittent fasting, uh, my trainer at the time, Chris Sykes, was the one who told me about it. And he told me, he was like, what I want you to do is go online and I want you to Google Dr. Jason Fung and I want you to watch his videos on intermittent fasting. So I want you to, to make, sure, make sure he listens to this episode and tell him that I feel very indebted because I think I definitely watched like, you know, four or five videos on intermittent fasting and they he was the first person so my trainer chris sykes told me about it and then i watched those videos with dr jason fung and that's how i got into intermittent fasting and i loved it so much i and, and lost weight and so i that's when i wrote my own personal journey about it so yeah so um anyway i'm sorry go back to what you were saying so you said you were diagnosed with fatty liver right so fatty, fatty liver disease is sort of the precursor to diabetes. And I actually, at 12, got my fatty liver disease, probably because I drank like four liters of apple juice a day for 12 years. Uh, I loved apple juice, and my parents thought it was good for me, and they didn't think of the 
fruit being sugar or juice being sugar. And fructose is, is one of the biggest culprits of fatty liver disease. Uh, so I drank all this juice and it made my liver really fat. Even though my arms were skinny, my legs were skinny, I had no belly, my liver became fat. But because my doctor considered me to be underweight, she was really confused as to why I had these diseases of obesity because back then they only saw fatty liver disease in people who were obese and generally a lot older than I was. So they kept an eye on it. So how much apple juice, how much apple juice were you drinking? Uh, probably about four liters a day uh, of apple juice. So that's close to a gallon for, for American list friends uh, listening. Um, but I, I did that. So, so where do you live? Where do you live? Uh, we're in Toronto, Canada. Okay. Okay. Both of you are. That's where Jason, Dr. Jason Fung is as well, right? right. Yeah. We're about 20 minutes away from each other. Awesome. Um, so how, how far are you from Virginia Beach? I live in Virginia Beach. Just curious. Uh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> probably an hour and a half plane ride, I suspect. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not, not bad. too far. Um, okay. So... Keep going about the fatty. You said you were diagnosed with fatty liver. Was it pre-diabetes? Well, usually fatty livers, most people with pre-diabetes are, are, have fatty liver disease. Um, my doctors just decided to check, keep checking in on it every year. But because I was so skinny, they didn't really think anything of it. And I just remember one day my doctor told my mom, you know, she'll probably grow out of it because it doesn't make sense because she's so underweight. But I had these fatty organs. Uh, when I got older, uh, I w was doing research in nephrology, obviously, for, for since a young age. And I got really disheartened. The reason why I wanted to be a researcher was to make medical breakthroughs and to help people. And I realized with diabetic kidney disease, which was what I was studying, that unless you can make the diabetes better, you couldn't make the kidneys better. And they always tell you that diabetes is a chronic progressive illness. So it was really, really frustrating. Um, and I got frustrated in my mid-20s. I'm like, okay, like I can't do this for a job anymore. All I'm doing is watching people die, and I'm never going to be able to help them because you can't get rid of the diabetes. So I said, well, at least try to help yourself. You're young. Uh, so try to change your diet and get a personal trainer and see a fancy dietitian. So I did all those things. And within a year and a half, I had gained almost 100 pounds. Insight, looking back in my youth, um, I, I wasn't visually obese, but I fasted all the time. I loathed eating breakfast in the morning. It was a big fight between me and my parents. Uh, it definitely never happened when I was in university. And in university, too, even though I was surviving off of pizza uh, and other fast food, in, my, in hindsight, I was fasting all the time because I would go for days sometimes without eating. So I was able to maintain my weight, but I was still sick from what I ate. And then I started, started changing my diet, following the Canadian Food Guide, which is the same thing as a U.S. Food Guide. And I gained an incredible amount of weight. So this is with a dietitian guiding me, telling me I'm doing everything right, and this is working out with a personal trainer three or four times a week, and I gained that much weight, and it was not muscle mass, and for the first time in my life, I became just visually obese and overweight, according to the body mass index, and along with that came the diagnosis of diabetes.
Uh, so personally, I was frustrated with my career choice, and that's what drove me to try to take control of my health, which was a disaster. But Jason was also disgruntled with his career choice, too, because he wanted to be a doctor to make people better, and he wasn't able to help his diabetic kidney patients. So he started thinking outside of the box, you know, well, okay, I can't fix the kidneys unless I can fix the diabetes, and well, why is diabetes such a huge epidemic these days when it wasn't 100 years ago? Like, yes, diabetes is around 100 years ago, but why is, was it not as prevalent as it is today, and why do you see these big gaps? And this was something that, you know, bothered him particularly about my case. You know, my, gran my grandmother and my father both had diabetes. So my father's mm -hmm. mom was, was diagnosed, but she wasn't diagnosed until she was 75. And my father was around 55. And I was like 27 when I was formally diagnosed with diabetes. So why the big gaps in time? Like, why did my grandmother get an extra 20 years on my dad and 50 years on me, you know, of living a healthy life without diabetes? And why was I diagnosed so young compared to both of them? Um, so what, what goes back? Like, what change, you know, happened? How did I grow up eating that was different from my grandmother? And, well, my grandmother never snacked. And she often fasted for religious reasons because she was Catholic and Lent used to be like 40 days of fasting and there was fasting on Fridays throughout the year. And I didn't grow up in a particularly religious household. There was no fasting and we snacked all of the time. And we, I went to school with like a, like a huge box full of food. So my mother wouldn't worry about me going hungry at any given point throughout the day. My family, my family has a song. You know that song? All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Do you know that song? Do you guys have that in Canada? <laughs> well, well, my, my family, I don't snack like this anymore, but they used to say, all I do is snack, 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 no matter what. Because we were always just like, I'd always be like, okay, do you want a snack? 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 It was out of control. It, it was totally out of control. My, my grandmother um, was uh, the first one to point it out. She's like, you know, we totally changed our diets. And she said, and I went from eating real food to not real food. Like I went from eating butter to eating margarine. And who the hell knows where that margarine actually comes from? So she, for right. a woman who is, you know, in her 70s with dementia, uh, she had a really good handle on this. Um, so it, it was that kind of, you know, Toronto's the most multiculturally diversity in the entire world. And over 50% of the population was born in Canada. And we have so many people that fast for religious reasons, particularly Ramadan. And this is something that really sparked Jason to think about fasting as a therapeutic treatment because we see all these patients go through Ramadan, lose weight, come off their blood pressure beds, get improved diabetes, come off diabetic medications, and then they go back to eating after 30 days, and their weight would go up, their blood pressure, blood sugars again. Um, so Jason also grew up in, uh, or Jason, I didn't grow up in a religious family, Jason grew up in a religious family, and he'd always heard about fasting for spirituality, but what about the therapeutic side? Was there more to it? You know, if every major religion in the world incorporates fasting, there's there's got to be more to it than, you know, connection with oneself and the environment and with each other. So he's already doing research into 
fasting and religion and particularly looking for therapeutic properties or reports over the centuries. And it was interesting. And for me, I was struggling to go low carb because I knew low carb was a great way of eating. But I grew up eating like the worst food with two busy parents, one really sick parent. Um, and when my mom when you was in the hospital for the entire year. So I lived off of pizza, Chinese food, McDonald's, mm-hmm. like um, growing up. So it was, uh, I didn't know how to cook either. My parents were too busy. And there wasn't like a mom at home cooking that I could learn from all of the time. She was sick or she was busy. So it was, it was uh, tough trying to change my diet. And I was a carbohydrate addict. And now you you are you're you are tending to follow more of a ketogenic diet for the most part with a few cheats or yeah. Now I don't follow a ketogenic diet, but it seems like there's a lot of intermittent fasting fans out there who also eat a ketogenic diet. So talk to people, how do these two go hand in hand? Like people ask me all the time, can you be in ketosis without eating keto? Can you talk about that? Yeah, you can be in ketosis without eating keto if you fast enough, because ketosis means fat burning and fat fueling. So you might not be eating a perfectly strict ketogenic diet. Uh, Actually, through my entire weight loss, I was just working on improving my diet, but I wasn't on a strict keto diet. But fasting enabled me to be in a state of ketosis enough to lose almost 100 pounds at the end of the day. Um, So you can absolutely be in ketosis without being so rigid with a diet. You would just have to fast more. Um, How fasting and keto go hand in hand is that we know insulin is a problem. Our previous diets drove our insulin levels very high to a level of toxicity within the body. And that toxicity has created a condition called insulin resistance within our bodies. And the diet, following a ketogenic diet, prevents your body from producing too much insulin. And too much of anything that's good for us is bad for us in excess. So just because insulin, it's good if our bodies produce insulin. If our bodies don't, then we have type 1 diabetes, and that's potentially life-threatening. But having our bodies produce too much insulin is also a really bad thing. It's about having the right level within the body for it to function properly. So eating a ketogenic diet prevents those levels from going too high, the insulin level from going too high, which is great. So you're not adding any unnecessary insulin into your system. Your body will produce insulin in response to what you eat, and it produces the most insulin in response to consumption of carbohydrates. And depending on how how uh, sick you are, it does the same thing with protein. Um, but it produces very, very little insulin in response to dietary fat. It's almost negligible. So um, when you eat a diet that's high in fat, moderate protein, and low in carbs, like a ketogenic diet, then your body's really not adding any unnecessary insulin to the system. It's very minimal what it adds. So that's great at keeping your levels in a healthy range. But a lot of us have gotten to the point where we we have damage from having high levels of insulin for a long time. And just eating ketogenically does not always fix that damage in everybody. And people with mild damage, it solves the problem. You don't have to do any fasting or 
or be extreme. A lot of people think that they need to fast for seven days. That's not, that's not true. So you, you don't have to be extreme, but there are some people that do have damage. They've developed metabolic syndrome, for example, or they put on an extreme amount of, of weight and really can't get it off very easily at all. A lot of people come to my program with Jason when they have been keto, like really strict keto, and it's still not enough. Like they've made some progress, but they haven't gotten there and that's because their body has leftover damage uh, that was a result of these high insulin levels and the fasting actually fixed that damage so this is where the keto diet can go hand in hand with the fasting um, the keto diet uh, prevents the problem from accelerating and prevents the problem from coming back. But it's a fasting that it can actually fix a problem in people with more severe, ins like with insulin resistance or more severe insulin resistance. But I mean, for someone who's 24 and, you know, gained 20 pounds in university and is otherwise healthy, um, probably just doing a ketogenic diet and cutting out snacking would be, be good enough to get them to a healthy place. So a question that I like to ask every guest is what is a day in the life of Megan like when it comes to your eating? So can you tell us like from the time that you wake up and the time that you go to bed, like what hours do you eat? What hours do you fast? And what are you eating inside those eating windows? So like, let's talk about yesterday, for example. <laughs> Um, yesterday was a bit of a bit of a not normal day because we had some snow. We had a snowstorm, um, and our schedule didn't go as planned. I guess today would be a more normal day. But tell us yesterday. Still tell us yesterday, yesterday even though it was normal. Um, yesterday we didn't get to go grocery shopping, so we had very little food in the house, and it was an eating day. So we wake up and we work out every morning. We either hit the gym or if it's not a gym day, and you. And you hit the gym in the fasted state? Yeah, always. Uh, so we're usually about 16 or 18 hours fasted. So yesterday, um, we had some bacon. We were out of eggs, or we would have had eggs. Um, what, time did, what time did you start eating yesterday? So we woke up at 4.30, and our first meal was at 8.30. Okay. So we were up for four hours before we ate. Okay. And then when did you end your eating window yesterday? Um, we usually eat within about half an hour. So it was more of a, I had a bacon, avocado and MCT oil. And typically I would have had a couple of eggs too. We just didn't have any. Um, and then later on in the afternoon, um, around two o'clock, uh, Again, we, we eat within about half an hour, 45 minutes. It's how long our eating window is. Uh, I had a small steak, about four ounces of steak and four ounces of salmon. Uh, we had some broccoli and I had a salad with avocado oil on it. Okay, and then did you eat dinner? No, we didn't. So I just do, on my eating days, I just eat twice. I always try to have my second meal before 4 p.m. And um, that's it. So just breakfast. So do, so you never, you, your eating window is usually from like 8.30 to 2.30? Usually. Saturday nights is usually the only exception. Um, and sometimes on Sundays. But Monday through Friday, that's what we do. Do you like to eat in a six-hour eating window? That's correct. Me too. Me too. What's funny is I actually, my eating window that I like to eat in is usually 12 to 6 or 1 to 7. Um, sometimes I'll do 11 to 5. 
Um, lately, I feel like I've been doing 11 to 5 just because by 11, I'm starving because I wake up really early and work out in a fasted state. So by 11, I'm usually like, okay, I'm ready to eat. Today, I was so hungry this morning. I woke up at 4, was at the gym at 5 and was done at 6. But by like 7.30, I was really hungry. I was like, I'm making today. I'm going to have breakfast and lunch, and then I'm not going to eat dinner tonight. So that was kind of... That's funny that I did that, but I don't normally do that. So you said you do normally 8.30 to 2.30, six-hour window, and then you, on Saturday nights, you will make an exception to eat dinner. What does your eating window look like on Saturdays? Usually we sleep in a little bit, so we don't uh, eat our first meal until around 10.30 or 11. And uh, we, we're old people now, um, so. <laughs> yeah, you're so old. Would you say you're 35? If it's just my husband and I, we usually go at between five and six. We'll go out for dinner to a restaurant in the area. Um, if we go out with friends, I'm usually kind of, they don't like to go out as early. So I usually try to ask for 6.30 or 7 and, and just let them know that we wake up really early because we do and we're more productive in the morning. So why not just roll with your body chemistry and physiology and wake mm-hmm. up early? So uh, usually 6.30 awesome. or 7. Yeah. Well, we would be in perfect. I, I would hang out with you all the time if you lived closer because that's exactly when I like to eat. My friends joke me all the time because sometimes like at 4.45 in the afternoon, they'll call me and they'll say, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I just finished dinner, you know, <laughs> which that's not normal for around here. Um, so I want to really kind of talk, dive in deep about intermittent fasting because it's the backbone of our show. And we have all kinds of guests that come in. We talk about thyroids and hormones and gut health. But today I want to really get down to the back to the basics of intermittent fasting. And I want you to debunk five of the most common intermittent fasting myths that we hear all the time. Hey guys, we absolutely love getting your questions into the podcast, but we're also interested in your journey. So if you've started intermittent fasting and have some success or even struggling a little bit, we want to hear about it. Email me your intermittent fasting stories to Chantel at ChantelRayWay.com. Myth number one is intermittent fasting will cause my metabolism to slow down because my body will think that it's starving. That's not true because if you have excess body fat on you, all excess body fat is is stored fuel for your system. Um, So if you're not going to get into starvation mode unless you have no excess fat to fuel on. So a lot of us aren't malnourished, especially here in North America. We tend to be a little overnourished. So all your extra extra body fat um, is plenty of fat to fuel on. And I fast professional athletes who are like 7% body fat, and they still have extra fat to fuel on. So you're not going to get into starvation mode. You're not malnourished before entering a fast. So your fasting is not going to malnourish you uh, in that sense. Also, when you fast, your body produces counter-regulatory hormones as a part of the stress response to being in a fasted state. And a lot of these counter-regulatory hormones work in your favor. One of them is noradrenaline, um, which causes the body to produce quite a lot of adrenaline, and adrenaline actually increases your metabolic rate. 
There's a lot of great research out there that's come out since 2016 that's compared caloric restriction versus alternate daily fasting. And in the calorie, there was one particular study, and they assessed um, two groups of popula two populations, one that did calorie restriction and one that did alternate daily fasting. And the alternate daily fasting group virtually had no change, no clinically significant reduction in metabolic rate, but the calorie restriction group saw a clinically significant reduction in metabolic rate. And that was a randomized control study, which is the gold standard of all medical research. Um, so it is, it is very different. You, you know, you wouldn't fast someone who is definitely in a malnourished state who had no body fat, but your body fat is just extra fuel that you then burn because you filled your body with more food and more food and more food energy. So if you've got extra body fat, it's pretty safe for you to fast. And those counter-regulatory hormones, noradrenaline, and the production of adrenaline is going to keep your metabolism intact. Okay, great. Myth number two, intermittent fasting is bad for my blood sugar. If I don't eat sugar every couple hours or eat something, I will see my blood sugar drop and I will pass out and feel weak. So if you, you eat sugar, you cause your body to produce a lot of insulin. And then your insulin's job is to help metabolize that sugar that you have. So you eat a lot of sugar and your sugar spikes and your insulin spikes. And then the insulin has to get rid of the sugar from the blood, which drops your blood sugar levels back down low. So the easiest way to avoid those highs and lows is to cut out the sugar. So you get nice, stable blood sugar levels across the board. If you're someone who's experiencing this now, you probably want to cut out the sugar for a few days before you try to fast. But and it's it's not just sugar. It's it's also those carbs too. Or or anything that you eat. I mean, really not anything if you have fat, but but when you're, you know, if you had a, even a sandwich that had bread and and turkey and, you know, whatever, your insulin's going to come into effect. So it's not just sugar. Uh, when people think sugar, a lot of times they think, you know, a cookie or a candy or stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So potatoes, um, rice, pasta, bread, corn, all of that uh, has the exact same effect. They're all carbohydrates. They're all glucose. And glucose is a, is a sugar. Um, so carbohydrates, starches, are just long chains of, of sugar molecules linked together. Um, so when you cut, when you're fasting, you force your body to, to normalize. And having these periods of highs and lows as a result of the carbohydrates of the sugar that you consume. Awesome. Myth number three, when I'm following intermittent fasting, I can eat whatever I want, as much as I want, as long as it's in my eating window. Can you respond to that? is isn't always the case with every individual. We do have some people who don't eat very well when they do eat, but they can essentially outfast their bad diet. Um, mm -hmm. But they're still eating really poor stuff. And I mean, the fasting will help keep control of the insulin levels, but it can't fix the damage that that bad food has to your, your body. Um, so it's, it's not always the case. And there are very few people that have 
metabolic syndrome that can really eat anything other than a ketogenic diet. Um, so it, they, even with lots of fasting, they can't outfast even a good diet, let alone a bad diet. They need to be on a strict ketogenic diet in order to make progress. And as they get healthier, they can follow a more liberal, low-carb diet and maintain good health. So that's not, that's not the case. The bad fats, the bad sugars in these foods, especially fructose and high fructose corn syrup are just terrible. Um, so you can still cause a lot of disease. There are very few people that can outfast a poor diet, just like you can't out-exercise a poor diet, you can't outfast a poor diet either. Awesome. Myth number four, it's not safe to work out while intermittent fasting. I need to eat before working out. <laughs> That's not true at all. And I just wrote a blog post about this the other week that you can find on our website. Um, your body needs electrolytes and hydration before you fast. Um, so you don't need to get the hydration and electrolytes from food. You could have a cup of broth. You could have a glass of water with a pinch of salt in it. All your body needs is the hydration. And what you're getting from food is the water from the food. Food has water in it. Natural foods have a tremendous amount of sodium sodium in them too. Like broccoli has got an incredible amount of sodium in them or in it. So you don't think of these things. Um, but food has those electrolytes. An avocado's got so much potassium in it more so than a banana or two bananas so that's where the benefit comes from and you could have bone broth you could have again water with with some salt you could have some pickle juice that's what you need for a successful workout and most patients like I've worked with over 8,000 people across the world doing this and I work with a lot of professional athletes some who will train very intensively in like mixed martial arts for and do a five-day water fast they're, they're drinking water instead of eating food for their water. They're actually drinking water and they're adding salt to that water rather than getting the salt from the food and they're perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, you know, have you ever tried those noon, like N-U-U-N, those noon uh, hydration electro, electrolyte tablets that you can just stick into your bottle of water, do you like those or is there a specific brand of electrolytes or do you say drink smart water when, when you're talking about the electrolytes? Because I think it, it's, those make a big difference. What's kind of your favorite go-to for the electrolytes? So we're really big in our program on real food um, and real in general and, and not really supplementing with anything. Um, we'll encourage our patients to take Epsom salt baths. Um, that's about as out the there as we go. But literally, if you keep your sodium levels happy, your potassium and magnesium stay fine. And most of these um, electrolyte supplements on the market, they have too much potassium in them in order for you to get the right amount of sodium. So we just focus on the sodium in our program and make sure people take salt. So either bone broth or just salty water or pickle juice. And that's good enough. A lot of these other things too have other sweeteners in them. The best one on the market though, and I'm not affiliated with this company in any way, um, is uh, Keto Chow. Has some fasting drops and they actually consulted us. We don't get a penny, but they wanted something that was good quality and that like actual fasting experts would recommend. So I'm not affiliated with them. I get no royalties or sponsorship fees from them, um, but they were smart. They asked, you know, they asked, well, why don't you recommend any of these other ones and how could we make our brand different? 
So if you were going to supplement with something, I do like the fasting drops. And what I like about them is that they were so willing to make ones without potassium in it because potassium is very dangerous and people don't realize that. Too much of it's very dangerous. Too little of it's dangerous. But there's all these people out there that are telling me, hey, Megan, I've got to eat like five bananas a day. Where else can I get my potassium from? And I'll say, well, what disease do you have that makes you have such low potassium levels? And they'll say, none. And I'll ask them, well, what is your potassium level? And they say, I don't know. So why the heck are you seeking out potassium? Well, let's talk about that because, you know, you know, that's funny because honestly, I would say like for me personally, if someone asked me, do you, for whatever reason, I think I have it in my mind that I'm low in potassium. And the reason why is because there's a couple things that if I'm not feeling well, like right now, let's say I just wasn't feeling well. And someone said to me, Chantel, you're not feeling good. What could I get you? And I'd say an avocado. And I would eat an avocado, which has tons of potassium. And it would be a game changer. I'd feel so much better. Um, Coconut water, like fresh from like a Thai coconut, which coconut water has a lot of potassium. And so for me, it was just kind of one of those things that I was like, well, it's got to be the, like, what, anything I was craving, like if I looked at what I was craving, it was always a potato or avocado or a banana or, you know, coconut water. And as soon as I would take one of those things, I would literally go from not feeling good to like feeling really so like, um, like almost like a new person. So in my mind, I was like, man, I must be, I must be low on potassium. So a lot of people get low in potassium because they're actually low in sodium. Your body will hold on to all of the sodium it's got and it will lose potassium. It will waste potassium because every time you go pee, you have to urinate out something. Um, So if your sodium levels get too low, your body starts wasting potassium and magnesium to hold on to that little bit of sodium that it has. So Mm -hmm. I would would definitely go get your potassium levels checked out because there are people who genuinely have low potassium levels. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, But I... But I think it's the electrolytes, probably sodium in most cases where people aren't getting enough salt and then they become potassium and magnesium deficient as a result. Whereas if they had just supplemented with salt in the first place, they wouldn't have become potassium and magnesium deficient. And most people are really terrified of salt. They don't use enough of it when they cook. And I went to a cooking class once and my husband said, why, why does restaurant food taste so much better than food that people make at home? It's because we use salt. And we're not afraid to use salt in the kitchen. Um, so a lot of it goes back to goes back to salt. And you are getting some sodium in avocados and other potassium-rich foods as well. Um, but I would uh, I wouldn't disagree that potassium definitely probably makes you feel better. But you're probably not getting enough sodium in the first place. But mm. on the other hand, there are conditions that cause people to have very low potassium levels, and it's always good to have your electrolytes tested by a doctor. Um, so it's it, my mother. I encourage her to eat potassium-rich foods because she has one of those conditions. I don't. My potassium is actually slightly too high. Um, so I eat I eat potassium-rich foods, just not a whole bunch of them, and. It's, so it's, it's really different for each individual. Awesome. So back to these keto chow electric, 
electrolyte drops. I just pulled it up online and it says on here, concentrated sodium, magnesium, potassium, trace minerals from the Great Salt Lake. So are you saying that some of the, some of the keto chow electrolyte drops don't have any potassium in them? Yes, you can special order them from the company. I know they'll be out for mainstream sales soon, but you can always have them special ordered. So, so, so your, so, so let me repeat back what I heard you say. My mom's a counselor, by the way. So I'm always like, now what I heard you say is, that's what she always says. (laughs) So, um, so what I heard you say is, is that you prefer people to take the electrolyte drops that don't have the potassium in it? Unless your doctor tells you you need to get potassium and you check those drops with your doctor. And tell tell us the reason one more time of why you prefer the one that doesn't have the potassium. Yes, because if you don't know your potassium levels and you start taking way too much of it, you could develop a heart heart condition or have a heart attack or stroke. Mm, Gotcha. All right. Um, Well, let's jump right into the listener questions. And this first one is Joyce in Colorado. She says, I was listening to a doctor on another podcast recently who mentioned that he does intermittent fasting for half of the year every year from January to June. He didn't give his reasoning why, but he said he's been doing this for many years. This was the first time I've ever heard of a regimen like that. And I'm assuming since he was a doctor, there was some sort of reason for it. Do you know any benefits of this intense intermittent fasting for a short portion of the year and then normal eating for the rest of the year? Joyce in Colorado. I think, um, hi Joyce, so I think everybody's different and we fit fasting in uh, to your lifestyle. So perhaps for that doctor, January to June is a more slower time of year for them. I know a lot of people that I work with that um, are Jewish, they have a lot of feasting, you know, from like September into the end of December. So they don't really do a whole lot of fasting at that time of year. Myself, I usually spend a lot of the summer traveling for work, um, which is great, but I go all over the world and I want to eat these, I want to eat lamb in Amman, Jordan, and I want to experience the local cultures in a low carb way, of course. Um, So I want to eat. So I tend to not fast very much in June and July, but January, February, March, which are slow months, there's no work travel usually, um, and I'm at home, then it's really easy for me to fast. So I find that this is very similar with patients that I work with, depending on their cultures. Uh, In Toronto, we have all four seasons of the year, and people tend to fast a lot um, in the in the um, winter, the fall and the winter, but not as much in the spring and the summer because in the, once the springtime comes around, they want to go out, they want to meet up with friends, and what do we do? We meet up with friends and we celebrate our communities around food. So people tend to do a lot more fasting in the fall when kids are back to school and everyone's back to work, and in the wintertime as well. Um, So I think it's just a sort of a seasonal thing, what works with people's cultures or lifestyles. And again, I don't do too much fasting at all in July and August um, because of work travel. But I do a whole lot in November. I do a lot in January and February and March because that's what works for my schedule. Mm, Awesome. All right. This next one is from Judy in Calgary. 
um, which I don't know where that is, but um, she said, I love your show, but I feel like I have listened to different people and and different people have recommended different supplements. And I've loved all the different people you've had on the show, but I keep adding a new supplement every time I listen to a new show. And now I'm on 14 different supplements, and I think this is too much. I feel like I'm getting out of control with too many supplements. How many is too many, and is there one that I should be taking for sure? And how can I dial this number down? Judy in Calgary. Well, I don't, um, I don't really know uh, what what your bloods are you know before we recommend any supplements to any patients we check their lab results because i just don't know you know some people have vitamin b deficiency but sometimes people have vitamin b levels that are like way too high like vitamin b12 levels that are through the roof so you wouldn't recommend a vitamin to them. Some people have magnesium deficiency, some don't. Most of North America has magnesium deficiency, but some don't. So is taking taking these supplements right for you. So I go get your blood work done at your doctors and have these things checked out that you are supplementing with. You can get zinc levels checked. You can get this checked or that checked. I once was convinced I had zinc deficiency. So I started taking zinc and I felt a hundred times worse. And then I got my zinc levels checked and they were really, really high. So they probably weren't high to start with. Um, We really encourage our patients to just eat real food, like eat real food, Um, get your blood work done, periodically so we know what's going on there's a place for supplementation and there isn't a place for supplementation you know here in Canada it's it's sunny today but we're not outside because it's cold so we take vitamin d but I don't take vitamin d in the summer why because I'm outside all the time in the summer and I'm getting plenty of vitamin d so why would I supplement it and give myself too much so you know really thinking of things sort of in perspective I don't eat a whole lot of fish in my diet no health reason just personal preference so I supplement with krill oil in my diet because I because I don't eat it so it's really specific my husband who eats lots of fish um, when I'm not around um, he doesn't need krill oil because he's getting plenty of those nutrients from food what are so, the sub how many supplements do you take per day total uh, right now I take vitamin D and vitamin K2 and that's all that I take um, and I'm only taking vitamin D because it's the winter time And now let's talk about the vitamin K2 because this is a little bit of a controversial uh, vitamin. Uh, Can you talk about that a little? And can you talk about the, um, the bitters, you know, the apricot bitters, the apricot seeds? Yeah, so I'm not, I don't know too much about um, apricot seeds um, or bitters. I was at a a retreat and they were talking about bitters and that improving digestion, um, which is great. So I'm not an expert in in that. I'm a a fasting fasting expert. But uh, in terms of, sorry, what was the first thing? (laughs) So, so with, well, let's talk about vitamin K2 because the the things that, the things that have a lot of vitamin K2 would be like egg yolks, cheese, uh, dark chicken meat, butter. So if you're not eating a lot of cheese or eggs or chicken, dark chicken meat, those are things that are good in vitamin K2. 
Yeah. So um, I only eat some of those foods. I don't eat all of those foods because I'm a notoriously picky eater. And even when I do eat eggs, I'll have like one of them at a time because I don't digest them very well. And it's usually on the weekends um, more so than throughout the weekdays. So for people who don't eat a whole lot of vitamin K2, vitamin K2, what it's supposed to be is like a transit director within the body. So making sure that your body utilizes the calcium that you intake properly, the magnesium supplements or the magnesium from the food that you take properly and make sure that your body directs vitamin D to the right places. So it's like a traffic controller. And a lot of people have these pulmonary calcifications. So calcifications in, in their arteries and that leads to to heart disease and you know, it's life-threatening. Um, so how did the calcium end up in those arteries in the first place? Well, vitamin K2 is something that's supposed to direct the or direct calcium. Like when it comes into your body, go to Megan's bones, go to Megan's teeth, you know, um, make Megan strong, go to where calcium is supposed to be. Don't get stuck in Megan's arteries. Um, so vitamin K2 is this traffic controller for things like calcium and magnesium and vitamin D to make sure that they're used efficiently by the body. There's a lot of people too who have a hard time you know, processing vitamin uh, D. So when you're exposed to it, you want to make sure that you utilize what you have very efficiently. So K2 is this important traffic controller within the body. So you can get it from your diet. And if you're not getting it from your diet as regularly, um, it's always great to supplement it with it. There's different kinds of vitamin K2. It's MK7 um, that you want to be looking for. Uh, talk to your doctor about recommended dosages. Most people take somewhere between most people take somewhere between uh, about 180 to 280 milligrams a day, but talk to your doctor, make sure you don't have any conditions or on any medications that say you can't take any vitamin K related items uh, and make sure it's a great supplement for you because it can be great to make sure that those nutrients get to the right places. Mm. Yeah, with with the um, apricot kernels, basically what the debate is, is that the apricot kernels, they say, is really good for cancer. Um, and there was a study done on the, the this people called the Hunzas. And they said that these Hunzas ate a lot of apricot kernels. And so someone did this big study and said, oh, these are so good for you. And apricot these apricot seeds have a lot of vitamin b17 in it and so it's kind of this controversial thing that says okay well you know these hunzas ate massive quantities of apricot seeds and you know they never had cancer and that sort of thing so that was that's what made me think of it when we were talking about the the vitamin um so okay this one is um we have two questions from the same person here. This is Taryn. It looks like these are both from Taryn in Bedford. Or this, this one might be from Anonymous. I can't tell if these are both from the same. Um, okay, let me start with this one. This is from Taryn in Bedford. I've been doing the keto diet for the past couple months, and since then I've joined several Facebook groups of people who are doing the same. I've noticed several comments when people are talking about a specific food item or recipe. Well, they say, 
such and such is low carb, but it's not keto. Or some people refer to their personal diets as low carb, but not keto. Can you explain the difference in low carb and the keto diet? It's fairly different for everybody because there are some people that can eat um, you know, like 20 grams of carbs and that kicks them out of ketosis. And there's some people that are healthy enough metabolically that can eat 100 grams of carbohydrates and they can be in ketosis. So it's really individual specific. And I think that's where a lot of people are misguided online. Um, what I can eat in a day in terms of carbohydrates and get ketones of three is very different um, as a healthy individual now than I could when I was an unhealthy individual. I can eat about 80 more grams of carbohydrates a day and get ketones of three than I could when I was sick. So it really varies from individual to individual. So it's very specific. Um, we, we have different ranges. When people consume 20 grams of carbohydrates or less, we call that ketogenic, which means it's very extreme in the sense that it's very low in carbohydrates. And that's what, hey, that's what I had to do for a couple of years, actually, uh, in order to get you know, great, uh, great health. Um, but people who sort of consume between about 50 and 20 grams of carbohydrates, we call that moderate low carb. And somewhere between about 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrates, we call that liberal low carb. And over that, we typically call it a higher carb diet um, or a high carb diet. But again, it, it varies for individual. And, you know, if I were to go out and eat 90 grams of carbs in French fries, I would get kicked out of ketosis. If I go eat 90 grams of carbs from cauliflower, flour, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, avocados, olives, eggplant, I'm not going to get kicked out of ketosis. Um, so it's really carbohydrate specific. I think people are trying to label things, but it's really tough to label because we're all each so different. And you're going to find that when you're sick, you can barely tolerate any carbohydrates. But as you get better and heal, you can have great great uh, ketones and be in a great state of ketosis with more carbohydrates, just the right carbohydrates in the fibrous, non-starchy um, carbohydrates. You can actually, you'll be able to tolerate those a lot better. Awesome. All right. Jenna in Connecticut. I've been consistent with intermittent fasting for three months now, and I can't believe the results I'm seeing, not only with my weight loss, but with my mental clarity and energy. Six days a week, I eat in a six-hour window, and it's typically from 12 to 6. The only exception is my morning coffee. I found some flavored Keurig cups that don't appear to have any calories or sugar, but the coffee says coffee and other natural flavors. I'm not someone who likes to ask questions that I can easily find on Google, but I've literally spent hours finding the answer for this online and haven't come up with any conclusions. It's not just one Keurig brand, cup brand either. I noticed this trend in other natural flavors with no explanation. Will these flavors break my fast and hurt my weight loss even if they appear to be calorie free? So, so for someone who doesn't drink coffee, um, no, a lot of my patients have Keurigs and in natural flavors for what they will, who knows? Um, it's actually really mind boggling with the FDA and Health Canada permit to be labeled as a natural flavor. So personally, I tend to stay away from waters that are naturally flavored teas that have natural flavorings in them or coffees. That's my own personal preference because I don't know if they're truly natural or 
if they're very funky things. Um, but in terms, I have lots of uh, patients who drink coffee with natural flavors, tea and water also with natural flavors, and it doesn't seem to hinder or slow down their process in any way. Right, perfect. This is Heather in Virginia. I recently worked, started working out with a new trainer who's insistent that I eat four to five meals a day. I try to explain to him that his way of thinking is extremely old school and that our body doesn't need to eat all day long. But the problem is he is absolutely chiseled and in shape and he is the expert. And I'm someone with a lot of weight left to lose. From everything I've learned from this podcast and in your book, I truly believe I shouldn't be feeding my body all day long and that I need to give it time to rest and digest. Not only that, I don't have time to be prepping all these meals each day. How should I explain to him in a way that will be respectful and he will accept? I want this help with my workouts, but I simply don't agree with his way of thinking, Heather in Virginia. And I think she she makes a good point because if she's, let's say she's, I don't know how heavy she is, but let's say she's, you know, 60 pounds overweight and he's eating every couple hours and is chiseled as a rock, right? And she's going to him going, no, I don't think I should eat. I, I'm just trying to picture this, right? She's she's saying, I don't think I should be eating every two hours, da, 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 da. And I bet he's responding by, not to be mean, but look at you and look at me. And... Uh, I'm as chiseled as can be with doing meal preps and eating every couple of hours, so you should listen to me. I'm just guessing. It's different because they obviously lead different lifestyles, and they probably eat very different carbohydrates too. Um, not that she, that she's eating bad carbohydrates now, but she probably ate bad carbohydrates that got her to the place where she is at today. Whereas this guy probably his carbs are probably sweet potatoes um, and things that aren't aren't as bad. Nothing, not fructose or high fructose corn syrup, which is the biggest culprit. Um, not lots of highly refined and processed foods. Also, she's probably not being fit 12 hours a day, seven days a week for her job and, and being completely active. So this guy is probably eating better quality carbs and he's moving nonstop all day long and he's probably very active in his personal life as it is, whereas most of us aren't. My personal trainer, he's working out all day with people and himself and I go to the gym for an hour and then I come home and I sit. I sit with, uh, I sit, you know, answering emails, I sit doing interviews, I sit writing books, and then, or I go to the clinic and I sit while I see patients. And I'm not being active, I'm being extremely sedentary. I might walk my dog later today for 30 minutes. That's about it. Um, and, you know, a lot of us got sick from drinking the sodas with high fructose corn syrup and eating a lot of the processed junk food that was all sweetened with uh, high fructose corn syrup. And that causes damage in the, in the body. So it takes a different approach to actually fix that damage. And if we're not being as active as this guy is and chronically burning off everything that we're eating, we're never going to, to, to get there. Um, so that's the biggest difference. Okay, awesome. All right, this next one is from Judy in San Diego. If I want to do a longer fast, let's say I want to do five full days, there's no way I can do it without having at least like some green juice with no fruit, lemon in my water, and cream in my coffee. Are you okay with this? Um, well, that's not really fasting. 
right? Because the green juice, uh, not so much the lemon in your tea, but the cream in the coffee, all of that's going to cause insulin to be produced. And if insulin is a fat trapping hormone, you can't trap fat and lose fat at the same time. That's the bottom line. So if you're producing fat trapping hormone, you're not going to be losing body fat. You're going to, your body's going to actively be trying to store that body fat. So, I mean, it's a place to start. Everybody has to start somewhere with fasting. When I started, I drank a ton of broth, like an insane amount of broth. Um, but then I didn't need it anymore. My fasting muscle got stronger and I could fast without it. And as soon as I stopped it, I lost a lot more weight. Um, what is the longest that you've gone um on a longer fast, like instead of just doing like a 18 hour, 24 hour, what's the longest amount of time you've gone? 11 days. And did you do complete water fast, nothing else with it? Or did you black coffee or anything like that? I just did water for it. So flat, mineral, carbonated, boiling, cold. <laughs> it has many different ways you could have water. And I had salt and I would have Epsom salt baths daily. How often do you do those longer fasts? Uh, I typically do uh, 11 days is sort of an off one to try. Um, I do five to seven days about four four times a year. I think of it as seasonal cleaning for my body. Um, and it's good if you do it while you do your seasonal cleaning because then you're busy and distracted <laughs> when you're fasting. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, ideally the water fast is just so powerful. But if you like you said, are building that that muscle that you can still see tons of benefits by doing it with a green juice that has no fruit and just lemon in your water and broth. There's you're still going to get so many benefits by doing that it's as well. Starting, it's a starting place. If you think of fasting like a muscle, doing it with green juice is sort of like stretching. Um, I mean, you're not going to build a lot of muscle mass or burn a whole lot of body fat, but it's something. It's, you know, you're getting moving, you're getting your system moving. Um, but, you know, when you get, um, when you get strong, like when stretching becomes easy, then you want to take it to the next level, right? So you always want to be challenging yourself. If you lose a challenge, then the less effective it's going to be. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. And I want you to talk to listeners about you you know you guys offer a great community both on facebook and live question and answers and different forums as well as individualized coaching so can you just kind of talk about i guess you guys use idm as kind of your your kind of slogan for the intensive dietary management program but tell us what idm offers and you know, where they can go to find out more about you, you and Dr. Fung. Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to the IDM website at www.idmprogram.com. And there's a ton of information about our programs there. But we have two main programs. We have a monthly membership subscription site. And when you enroll in it, you can pick from your own program. Uh, it's a self-guided program. So you'll have me giving you a weekly lesson. And you can binge watch. You can do all of the weeks at once. But there's 64 weeks. 
so there's a weekly lesson with some a quiz and some actions to get you started. And then there's community support. There's a great forum. There's group fasts. There's daily Q&As. There's a live meetup. We're having a live meetup later today at 4 o'clock with 90 of our members. And I'll be organizing the event so people can ask me their questions live. We And we offer continuing fasting education. So we talk about the latest and the greatest in the science um, behind fasting and nutrition. Um, so that people pay for monthly. It's $39 a month and you can cancel your membership at any time. If you're someone who's been trying this and is really struggling on their own and wants some more support or accountability, we have our personalized coaching program where you get to work with one of our therapeutic fasting experts that myself and Jason have trained and uh, they will they will coach you either one-on-one or in small group sessions to help you get personalized advice for you. They review your labs um, and offer you some dietary recommendations from your lab results too so they could guide you on potassium supplementation and magnesium supplementation and whatnot from the labs. Mm, That's awesome. Well, Megan, thank you so much for being on here. And I know that you have a little special um, for a few people about the monthly membership for their first three months. Talk about that. Yeah, so if you'd like to try it out, um, you can uh, enter in a coupon code that will pass along to Chantel, um, and it will get you 50% off for your first three months in the program. All right, and we will put that on our Facebook page, so go to that and check that out. Well, thank you again, and congratulations. You look absolutely amazing, and congratulations on all your weight loss. You look beautiful. Thank you too, Chantel. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. And if you would like daily accountability as well as a resource with lots of helpful tips about Chantel's intermittent fasting lifestyle, head on over to chantelrayway.com slash coaching. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.